0: Hello and welcome to a new series of the Holywell Trust Conversations podcast. My name is Jared Dean. So our podcasts are going to provide an in-depth briefings of some of the most important and timely issues affecting Northern Ireland and especially the Northwest. So we're going to start, of course, with the anniversary of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. Uh, We're currently celebrating, if that's the right word given the current Unpassed Stormont, its 25th anniversary. Um, so in this podcast we're going to hear from some of those who are inside the, uh, the agreement negotiations We're going to hear from Avla Kilmurray of the Women's Coalition Lord Bu, Paul Bugh, who was an advisor to David Trumbull And Ray Bassett, who was an Irish government official at the time So I'm joined again for this podcast series by Paul Gosling Paul, how's the form? Oh, grand, you know, Gerald. Good stuff, good stuff So Paul, can you begin by talking us through the agreement uh, and its key
1: points? Yeah, sure. The, the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement was signed on the 10th of April, 1998. At its heart was the concept of three sets of relationships, the three strands. Strand one was the internal political relationships within Northern Ireland, building the democratic structures through the Stormont Parliament. Mm-hmm. Strand two was the North-South relationship, which was strengthened via the North-South Ministerial Council and supported by North-South bodies to administer some North-South co- cross-border matters. Strand 3 was East-West. It's the mechanism for the various governments of the UK, its protected territories and the government of Ireland to come together through the British-Irish Council. The UK and Irish governments, the devolved governments of Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales and the governments of pr- d- protected territories of Guernsey, Jersey and the Isle Man are all members of the British-Irish Council. But in addition to that, the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference brings together the UK and Irish governments and that of Northern Ireland. Hi. So...
0: Three strands to it, Paul, but can you remind us how the agreement was brokered?
1: Yeah, uh, it's often easy to think it just happened, but actually Mm. it was the culmination of years of conversations and negotiations. These began while John Major was Prime Minister and Albert Reynolds was Taoiseach. So it was not just about the intensive months that led up to the Good Friday Agreement being signed. Uh, And we can listen to Ray Bassett, who was on the Irish government side, explain this.
2: The negotiations got off um, to a kind of very slow start and about a year or so into the talks, we had a, a bit like a soccer team. We we replaced the manager and uh, Dermot Gallagher came in and Dermot decided to operate on a level that he, he chose a certain number of people from around the, the department and abroad to come together in and, and what was known as the talks team. And our job is really to not just service the talks, but to sort of put together um, the policy background to it. And also probably equally important to gradually establish linkages with the other participants in the the talks, um, particularly Sinn Féin and um, the loyalists, um, because the whole point of the the talks, as far as we are concerned, was essentially to bring all violence to an end, which meant in, in respect that we had to bring the Republican movement into an into a position where they felt that th- th- there wouldn't be any further violence. Now, there have been a lot of private and back channel discussions, a lot of it involving Derry and um, some of the participants, maybe Brendan Duddy and Dennis Bradley, and that has come out much more in the open. But there had been a lot of tick tocking going on privately.
1: Initially, the discussions between the parties that were brokered by US Senator George Mitchell and that led to the Good Friday Agreement were regarded as having little prospect of success. Negotiations between the parties that were traditionally either hostile or untrusting were very difficult.
0: So it's interesting to hear Abelette Kilmerie, who was a representative of the Women's Coalition, joined the negotiations at a later stage.
3: My memory of the period was that it was a period of a mixture of exhilaration and and uncertainty, um, and I think that was particularly reflected depending on what people's experience was um, of the conflict um, over the over the previous uh, years, but also I suppose their, their their experience of of living in in Northern Ireland as a whole. Um, I think there was generally a sense that um. This was an opportunity that really couldn't be missed. And we can also hear Ray Bassett's take on the atmosphere.
2: No, it was was poisonous in some extent. For instance, Sinn Féin never spoke uh, directly to um, um, uh, the Unionist Party. The DUP were gone, but occasionally flirting around the corridor. The the, uh, SDLP and Sinn Féin uh, interaction was bad. The the SDLP literally couldn't stay in the room with the DUP. So really, the whole dynamics of it was that the two governments got together and we spoke to everybody. We generally met each other, did a draft, and then went around to the sort of sell it to the delegations. And sometimes you get your head bitten off and you come back and and redo it. There there was very little actual direct negotiations. Now, the Women's Coalition played an important role because they were a bit like the two governments. Uh, they didn't stand on ceremony, and they went to everybody. Uh, 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 and again, Monica uh, Mac williams and uh, Jane Morris and people like that, were, were, they, were, they, were, they were, again, the people skills were vital in it. Because when you get down to doing an agreement, it's very important to draft it, but you only draft what has been distilled, really, in the informal uh, contacts on the corridor. The, the two governments generally mingled with everybody, uh, I mean, Blair has admitted since that he actually personally liked the Republicans more than he did the unionists. Uh, and i I know the unionists much preferred Bertie than they did to Tony Blair.
1: And how important was George Mitchell's ability to get on with people in terms of George was
2: very really good. he He acted as a a kind of a calm figure. and he he, he was brilliant at at um keeping spirits up. I mean, you would go in and have a session where it was absolutely ghastly. Nothing would agree. Things would go backwards and everything. And George would walk out into the public and say, I can, for confidential reasons, I can't tell you. But everybody in there is 100% committed to it. And I remember sitting back with some of the delegates from both. And at this stage, we all kind of mixed together. People were just sort of saying, is he on the same planet? But he was absolutely right. He kind of had a, he used to say, you have a duty of hope and optimism. He was a superb chairman because he never really gave an opinion uh, or, other or, 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 oh, than you got to get this done. And it's up to you guys to do it.
0: So one of the things I found intriguing from the interviews was the difference between Paul Bury, Lord Bury and Ray Bassett and how important trust was in getting a negotiated settlement over the line. Um, so let's listen first to Ray Bassett, who's focusing on the relationship between the Irish and British governments.
2: Tony Blair and his new labor arrived and it was like a spaceship arriving. We had never seen anything like this from the British side. For instance, they were extremely informal. Everybody called him Tony. And there were none of the standing on ceremony uh, that the previous administration. I didn't know he, although Blair's mother was from Donegal, and he claimed that the Blair side even came from Dungannon and places like that. And Alistair Campbell had worked a bit in, uh, in, in the north as a, as a cub reporter. They didn't know a huge amount about it, but they were very willing to learn, and they were also not in rigid positions. So they would often say completely iconoclastic things to you that no British government would ever do. And I think a lot of it, a lot of the, of the, of the success of this stems right from the top, because right away, um, Blair and a, and, and, a, and a hand got on. Now, most governments would sort of say we have a fantastic relationship between such and such. It isn't It isn't usually true. It's all very functional. And, you know, the, the briefers, and I was often a briefer myself, go to say special relationship. But Blair and Ahern got on very well. And I also think that the fact that uh, Clinton particularly disliked John Major uh, from the United States, partly because he was aware of the efforts made by uh, the Conservative oh. government to discredit him during the elections, that when Tony Blair arrived, I think he was absolutely delighted and people got on very well. There was a whole different atmosphere. We were now working together. And during that period, and I've said this in other interviews, I have never worked in a situation where the Irish and British governments almost were interchangeable, where, you know, people on the British side, you would, you would talk to them as friends and things like that. and We had huge trust, because you could say things uh, to each other and it wasn't going to be used again afterwards and you would say things which occasionally is wrong and, you know, it, it, it a team spirit developed.
0: Now, let's listen to Paul Bury, who's more focused on the quality and often poor quality of the relationships between the political parties.
4: I'm not much of a believer in trust. Uh, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm constantly in the debate recently in the Lords uh, people talking about uh, uh, how if, if, if Boris's bill was introduced to the Lords there would be no trust with EU negotiators and I always thought this was trivial That both sides had an obvious uh, overriding reason to reach that agreement and the EU was not in the position. It had been four or five years earlier when it wanted had all kinds of reasons to give Britain a punishment beating and also it had become clear that the threat to the single market was not anything like as great as you might reasonably have believed it to be. Uh, and, and, the, and the UK's position in Europe, partly because of the Ukraine war, was much stronger. I never believed trust. I believed it shifted balance of forces. Now, in the end, there was a degree of trust. There is something in what you're saying, because there was that degree of trust between David, both with Seamus and later with Mark and there was at some fundamental level of degree of trust, but there were lots of negotiations that had to be with Adams. and um, There was never the remotest trust, and, nor, and David would frequently say he didn't have to have it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessary. He just had to make a calculation of what these people were likely to do uh, or not do. And that was what was actually required rather than actual trust. And uh, that would be my answer that there is something in this trust factor but it's never quite as big in the political game as people make out as opposed to the calculation of what the other side's real interests are.
1: Now, underpinning the success of the negotiations was not trust between the governments or not just trust between the governments but also the termination of George Mitchell and his team to get an agreement over the line along with the commitments of the British Prime Minister Tony Blair, the Irish Taoiseach Bertie Ahern. And also from previously, John Major, who also was committed to end the violence of the Troubles. This had been assisted by Major's government stating in 1993 in the Downing Street Declaration that it had no strategic, selfish or economic interest in Northern Ireland. And while when we look back on this time, we think about that as having come from John Major, significantly that phrase was actually first made by Peter Brook, when he was Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, a few days before Margaret Thatcher was forced out as Prime Minister, the Downing Street Declaration had specified that it is for the people of the island of Ireland alone, by agreement between the two parts respectively, to exercise their right of self determination on the basis of consent freely and concurrently given, north and south, to bring about a united nation, <laughs> a united <laughs> Ireland, if that is their wish. I mean, a lot of those terms, you know, we, we associate really with the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, and those principles that were mentioned there were reiterated in the Good Friday Agreement. Yes, uh, the GFA went beyond the details of the political relationships and the institutions that were support, supposed to make them work. It also included texts that removed the Irish state's constitutional claim on the North, unless and until there is a referendum in which the people of both jurisdictions state they want a united Ireland. The GFA contained commitments to decommission paramilitaries, release paramilitary prisoners, reform policing and remove the security infrastructure. It gave people born in Northern Ireland the right to identify as British, Irish or both. Human rights were central to the GFA, including through a promised Bill of Rights, along with the creation of a civic forum to provide a balance to the political institutions of government. Okay, um,
0: not all of which has happened, but <laughs> not all of which has happened. <laughs> okay, Paul, can you remind us who signed the the Belfast Good Friday Agreement?
1: Yeah, because often people get a bit confused about this. The the agreement itself was a an agreement between the two governments. So the signatories hmm. were actually Tony Blair and Bertie Hearn on behalf of the UK and Irish governments. So although other parties agreed to it in principle, they didn't actually sign it as signatories. They had to go off and talk to their parties to get approval. In particular, David Trimble had to get the Ulster Unis party over the line and uh, Gerry Adams and Martin McGuinness had to get an Ardesh convened and get agreement from Sinn Féin's party. Mm -hmm. But of course it was Trimble and Hugh who got the Nobel Peace Prize for their commitment. So other parties did also support it, the Alliance Party, the Women's Coalition uh, and also, very importantly, the, the loyalist paramilitary groups. A lot of people say it was actually their involvement that was really central to, to getting this agreed and to get unionists to, to agree matters. Uh, of course, there was one big party that opposed it, and that was Ian Paisley Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP. As we look back on that period, we often tend to focus on decommissioning and prisoner release as the tough issues, which they certainly were. But if we listen now to Paul Bew, then actually he points to the fact that there was another difficult challenge, which was to get the cross-border bodies agreed.
4: And the key thing in terms of my significance, if any, uh, the lead up to the agreement was the argument by cross-border institutions on the framework document, which those of us who are old enough to remember will remember induced a huge trauma within unionism because of the north-south arrangements proposed therein. And right from the start, I wrote that this was an exaggerated trauma and that this was doable and a model of cross-border cooperation was possible, um, which would be compatible, uh, as the unionists were concerned by that, with the survival of the union for decades. And um, as it it turned out to be the case, of course. Um, But I did persuade David of that uh, in the lead-in to the agreement. So he did not have the neuralgic fear of cross-border cooperation. That we forget because it's been so uncontroversial this century, but so many unionists then did have. It's been replaced by a different fear, by the way, which is the deal with the EU. It's the same generalized fear without much detail backing it up. Um, uh, And the fear of the creation of an all-island economy leading to a a, a, a political united Ireland. And in fact, we're in now an action replay, a similarly ill-informed debate. But David made the decision Uh, 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 he he always approached those talks with the conviction that you're going to have to degree a a, a solution involving an all-island dimension and that this was doable now that was my I definitely had an influence on him on that point he might well have reached a conclusion independently but he certainly had reached it and that significantly increased the chances of a
1: deal so What happened next, then, Paul? Well, once Stormont was functional under the Good Friday Agreement, a government was formed in which David Trimble of the Austrianists and Seamus Mallon of the SDLP became First Minister and Deputy First Minister. But as they had equal powers, they were de facto joint First Ministers. But they had a difficult relationship with both politicians having reputations for being prickly. And it lasted for a period, they start with... Yes, it did. That government lasted from 1998 to 2002 when the Unionist parties withdrew as they lost confidence in Sinn Féin's involvement in the Assembly and Executive. The institutions then remained down until 2007 when the St Andrews Agreement modified the Good Friday Agreement. The intention behind St Andrews was to provide confidence in the institutions and the parties' commitment to making them work. That involved Sinn Féin supporting the PSNI and the DUP to engage in power sharing with Sinn Féin. The British government in turn agreed to a process by which policing and justice powers would be devolved to the Northern Ireland government. This led to a government again, and this time it was Ian Paisley and then Peter Robinson that were first ministers and Martin McGuinness was deputy. That government collapsed in 2017 when Sinn Féin brought it down because of the renewable heat incentive scandal since when Stormont has only functioned from 2020 to 2022. And there were still difficulties, of poor. Yeah, the original Good Friday Agreement and the subsequent St. Andrews Agreement have themselves been followed by additional attempts to unlock political deadlock. There was the Stelmont House Agreement, Fresh Start, New Decade, New Approach Agreement. So, quite a bit of attempt to actually mm. sort out the problems where things weren't really fully over the line uh, with the Good Friday Agreement. The Stormont House Agreement of 2014 contained commitments for additional funding from the UK government, along with promises to make government in Northern Ireland more effective and efficient. It also contained new approaches to address the challenge of flags and parades. Measures were agreed to address the Troubles legacy, including the creation of an Historical Investigations Unit. Fresh Start was agreed in 2015. It included reforms to the way the Assembly worked, obligations for more effective cross-party government, Additional financial support from the British government, again, a programme for the removal of peace walls, a process to address the issues of flags and parades, again, and agreement to cut corporation tax to 12.5% to harmonise with the Irish Republic, which, of course, also hasn't happened. New decade, new approach, NDNA, was signed in 2020, and that led to the Assembly operating again for two years. But it once again included measures aimed at getting the executive and assembly to work more effectively and sustainably, stating that there could be no more collapses of the institutions. Well, that's a bit ironic, isn't it? <laughs> it, co- it contained a range of detailed measures to address specific Northern Ireland issues, including staffing and operational difficulties in the health service, the introduction of city Dales to Northern Ireland, and even a commitment to expand Derry's McGee University campus to 10,000 students. There were also additional promises on human rights and civic engagement but between fresh start and ndna something else came up which was brexit mm. that was followed by the protocol as an attempt to implement brexit in, G- in great britain while allowing northern ireland to trade freely in goods with great britain the republic and, uh, and also the rest of the eu brexit and the protocol seriously undermined political relationships
0: yeah okay so let's listen now to both Avlon and ray on what we're going to learn from those original good friday negotiations today
3: that we didn't spend enough time doing was looking at at the process of implementation and the reality was you know that when you're moving er, er, from the actual settlement into into into, if you like selling it there is a there is a time period i think where people are prepared to do more radical things or look at more you know at change issues but once you get past a certain time point maybe four years or five years then then it's harder to get people to, to remember, you know, why we were doing this. Um, so I think that was an issue. And then the other thing that really annoyed me was that there are things in the agreement that the British government were to do, like the Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland. But what did they do? You know, once these the interest started to wane, people like Mo Moulin were no longer there, they threw it back into the assembly. So that, you know, and, and, and there was a reason why the British government were to do it because we, we knew that it was going to be an issue that would be divisive in the Assembly. But the British government then threw it back into the Assembly. So And it still isn't done, of course.
2: I think we should have put timetables on, on things. I mean, we shouldn't allow, have allowed Trimble to essentially stop the, blo- the blockage of the, of, of the establishment of the, the executive. I think we probably, and I, I've spoken to some IRA guys, we probably could have pushed harder on decommissioning. I mean... Uh, we might have, you know, the the Republican movement did split. It didn't split majorly, but it did split. Uh, I think, you know, the 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 it it it, it damaged Trimble among his uh, supporters. I was never really absolutely um, mad about the 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 mandatory coalition from the very start, but that was an SD, It's the SDLP who pushed that and pushed the. Petition of concern, which has come back and essentially made it unworkable uh, in some respects. There has to be some judgment as to what a petition of concern is about, and uh, you know, if 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 an administration can be set can be established with a reasonable amount of cross community uh, representation and support, um, I think it'll it be better than leaving either, than giving the two parties whether it's on the national with the SDLP had at one stage and. Sinn Féin has it now, or the the EUP and the DUP. The one party can essentially put a block, and now we have the ridiculous state that the the DUP, which got not much more than 21% of the vote, is really saying, you know, nothing can go unless we agree with it. You know, what about the 79% who didn't vote for them, you know?
0: And let's also listen to Paul Bew, who, while not naming the St Andrews Agreement, is clearly criticising those negotiations for much that has gone wrong since
4: they changed the system of voting for first and deputy first minister uh, was a mistake. It was. It, I can see why the government agreed to it, because it allowed Paisley cover for what he wanted to do, which is become first minister. But uh, the fundamental thing, whatever you think about David Trimble and James Mallon, David Trimble and Mark Durkin, both those men were at different times. Elected by a majority of the elected representatives of the other community as well as their own to the office that they held, and that will be an internal glory to their names, and, uh, 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 if I can put it like that. And I think it's a mistake to remove that element of jointry. What I really mean is joint emotional support mm. for the office of First Minister and Deputy First Minister.
0: So. We are now, as we speak, at an impasse, and even if the immediate crisis can be resolved, the history of the last 25 years suggests another crisis will likely follow very soon. And when we look back at all these those agreements, what is clear is just how many attempts have been made to get the parties to work together with genuine commitment, yet the deep-seated problems remain. And there have been repeated attempts to deal with some of the most contentious, contentious issues, legacy, flags, parades, peace walls, that have also not been successful. Um, it's a slightly depressing story, but all our conversations are positive, and let's be positive. Conflict, the physical violence of the Troubles is over, um, and there's no reason to believe that they will return anytime soon. So thanks, Paul, to yourself, and thanks also to Avla, Paul, and Ray. Um, so as well as this podcast, the full-length interviews with each of our guests today will be available through our Hollywell Trust website. Um, we have to, as always, thank our funders, which in this case is the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland. This is the first of our new series, and the next podcast that myself and Paul will pull together is going to look at the, I suppose it's one of the impacts of Brexit, it's looking at community funding, the impact of the withdrawal of the European Social Fund, and the replacement funds that have been put in place by the British government, the Shared Prosperity Fund, and the Leveling Up Fund. So. We'll talk these again soon.